0: Well, hey, Chris. Hey, John. And how's it going? (laughs) (laughs) We need to
1: start all over.
0: (laughs) No, I think we're in this. We're here to talk about the latest episode of Better Call Saul. This would be episode five of season three. This was an episode called Chicanery. And this one was directed by Daniel Sackheim and written by Gordon Smith. And I know we talked a little bit about this on the horizon, the idea that there was some kind of McGill versus McGill that was going to happen. I don't know if we quite pictured it happening like this. When we first mentioned it, I pictured more of a traditional court setting as Mm -hmm. opposed to a hearing room like this. Yeah,
1: no, this would be the story of stories for the McGills to say, this is going to be a jam-packed nexus of excitement. the uh, trial scene. And we'll take up the whole episode with it, and there's a lot of complications and important details you got to put in.
0: But still, very much what we kind of mooted as a possibility when this storyline started shaping up this season was: are we going to get to see McGill uh, and McGill head off against each other? And I think we saw as much of that as we can possibly see. And I also. Th- think that we were sort of correct in our assumption that if the two brothers were in court or in any kind of court-like setting on opposing sides, that what we would end up seeing would not be necessarily the matter at hand, but it would be Chuck McGill versus Jimmy McGill. It would be like the way of life of Chuck McGill versus the way of life of Jimmy McGill, the philosophy of these two men.
1: Right. Jimmy tried to put Chuck's whole uh, life on trial, which I was surprised by, you know, just to think, well, you know, for Jimmy to be that earnest and to think that that's going to work i need to tell them uh how chuck always uh was against me and how he hates me and how this happened and that happened these things that happened years ago that just seem like uh, you would never be able to say that and sound coherent and clear and like you weren't getting into a a huge personal nest of crap that doesn't need to be brought out um but that was uh jimmy's plan anyway and he he did uh Get a certain amount of things across that way.
0: Yeah, I think that whatever we were thinking might be the meaning of the bingo uh, that Kim uttered last week Mm -hmm. to Jimmy. That let us know that whatever was going on, there was something that was happening according to plan here. That even if it seemed very much that Chuck had Jimmy on the ropes, the importance of that bingo was really just that Kim knew for a fact that their plan was to play that tape in court. What we were imagining was something a bit more complicated than what actually was going on. All that they really needed to know was, yep, the tape is in play. Now we can proceed with our plan that depends on the tape.
1: Right. But I I think also maybe Bingo meant a little bit of, um, not just for sure I found out that he wants to bring the tape in, but also maybe I goaded him into it a little bit. You know, like maybe they were, uh, Jimmy and Kim were thinking, and we're not 100% positive they're going to play the tape, but if you go and poke the hornet's nest a little bit, then that will make Chuck say, yeah, for sure, I'm playing it. You know, And so Bingo could also be, be that, like, yeah, he's mad now.
0: And I do think it's interesting that as much of a master chess player as we've discussed, Chuck is. I mean, obviously, in a major way, they kind of got one over on him. But even in just the general sense, there's a thing about his pomposity and his assurance that Things are going to go his way. um, That I think, maybe this is part of what you're saying too, is that in that moment, Kim kind of confirmed, yeah, we can use this against him. He's going to, he's crowing a bit Mm -hmm. about where he is. So in other words, their plan did kind of depend on him getting up there. And as we see, taking the stand uh, over Howard's objections, but also just putting himself in the line of fire, whereas some people might say, this case speaks for itself. I don't need to risk anything by going up there and testifying. Chuck is like, no, man, I can cinch the deal. I can testify, and everyone will listen to me, and they need to hear it from me because I'm the only one that can explain things. The ego involved in that was something that, um, yes, maybe they were stoking a little bit, but also maybe Kim was just, by poking him and seeing him act so smug about the tape, she was also saying, oh, yes, this is going to work because look how he's reacting to just this provocation.
1: And they need him to play the tape so that they can have it opened up to get into uh, their whole history of what's gone on with Chuck and Jimmy and get, the, get him flustered and everything, because if they don't get into all that, then the whole case is just about Jimmy breaking in, and nothing else can be, can be talked about.
0: We'll get back to the, the hearing in just a few minutes, but let's talk about how this episode sets the stage. The, the episode begins with a flashback, which seems to be the way that the show incorporates flashbacks, is to use them as a cold open. When you see it cold open like that, it takes a minute to sort of orient yourself in the timeline where you're supposed to be. Yeah. And you look for certain context clues. Obviously, in this case, a major clue was just Jimmy and Chuck are talking and behaving normally. Right. This scene was obviously a scene from before the beginning of this show. Yeah. They play off of the idea that Chuck is capable of putting on a charade if he has to. And Jimmy's kind of helping him in this ruse to sort of hide Chuck's condition from Rebecca. But you can tell that Jimmy really just wants to see his brother kind of maybe patch things up with her or get back with his, you know, get back into the swing of things or something. I think Jimmy seemed really sweet and caring in that scene. Yeah. Um, And that was a great miniature of... Chuck and Jimmy's relationship combined with some exposition that that set up Rebecca's return. Obviously, this is part of Chuck's personality, that he would feel the need to hide this from someone he cares about and who cares about him. As he says later, he doesn't want this woman that he loves to think less of him, which is both kind of pathetic and relatable and sad. Um, It's just a tragic character flaw that Chuck thinks she wouldn't understand or thinks she wouldn't take the time to understand.
1: Right, and it's just a personal little story where... Jimmy helped him that night trying to just allow him to have a nice night, I guess, and see what could happen.
0: Um, And of course, she's not aware of his condition, so like a normal person, she takes an important call and it sets Chuck off. And I still don't know what to make of certain moments like this now that we know even more uh, about what Chuck's condition is. You're ending that scene feeling sort of bad for Chuck for not wanting her to know, but also seeing how his his pride is really shooting himself in the foot here.
1: Well, I think his condition is fully real to him. So, you know, as long as he sees something with a battery uh, or anything, you know, electrical, lights, whatever, then he has what feels like a full-on attack. You know, if he doesn't see that and doesn't know that it's there, then he doesn't have that.
0: Right. So by showing us that, they're showing us that Whatever it is that's being triggered in him is not a physical reaction, but some kind of mental reaction. But why he seeks or craves or some part of him needs that—that that attention or that, whatever it is. Like who, who's to say he needs? Mm-hmm. We discussed last week that there's a, this sort of forces people to defer to him, and we, you know, you wonder if his ego requires that on some strange level some level of deference, you know, either way, I think that the show is careful not to vilify him because of mental illness. But the more you think of him as, Oh, this guy is doing these insensitive things because he's, he's mentally unwell. It, it makes you feel more compassion for him, which is why this episode was a, I mean, sort of like a moment that we've been wanting to see happen. But my feeling at the end of the episode was, well, that wasn't fun. Mm. (laughs) Like, that was super well acted and super well written and very entertaining. But it wasn't fun to see a man unravel like that. But in the opening scene, all, all we know is we've been reminded of this relationship and maybe the inception of Chuck beginning to sort of deal with his condition around people. And we're also seeing the changes made to his house that appear to be new changes involved with taking out the electricity.
1: But you got a good question of how to uh, analyze if we ever can uh, his uh, anxiety. Uh, you know, to think about the roots of it. I, I, it, it seems to me like um, it's just connected to. Uh, you know, he he had a break wherein something in his subconscious said. I don't want to function anymore or I, I can't handle being a lawyer right now, you know, that kind of thing to where it's like, get me out of here. And so I'll be uh, allergic to electricity. I'm going to have to turn everything off. I just want the calm and comfort of sitting in the dark and not having a lot of pressure on me. And so it gives him, <clears throat> you know, hives every, every time he's, he's around the modern workaday world in any way, basically. But in his, uh, Frontal lobe, his intellectual brain can still fight and say, "Well, I can, I can still function as a lawyer. I'll just uh, stay at home and have assistants bring the papers over to me, and I'll work by gaslight and so on."
0: Which seems functional to him. And then, as it spirals out from that, all these other things are just benefits, maybe that have served as ego that are part of that. Which is to say, the people deferring to him and people needing to make special arrangements and all of that—that that it, right. in some way, that that. Both appeals to his ego and satisfies his sense of okay, good uh, steps are being taken, measures are are being enacted to make sure that this is happening the way it should and i can I can enter into this world under my terms
1: right. I think that's like stage two of his of his uh trip down the rabbit hole. you know it started with needing to escape and then it continues with oh, I can kind of uh get a little extra power here and there through having this.
0: When he finally does snap at her, and she's like, what's your problem? He says, it's uh, incredibly bad manners to answer a cell phone in company.
1: Yeah, he comes up with this excuse.
0: It's just so rude, you know. And you can see him falling on his sword of, I will seem, as Jimmy says, you'd rather her think you're a raging prick than than know the truth, you know. Yeah. And even at this point, I'm wondering, does Jimmy already sort of know this is psychosomatic? Like, has he already sort of confirmed that for himself, and he just doesn't say anything because it's—he, too, is not yet pushed to the point where this is going to become a major issue for him, like whether Chuck is faking or not. He's sort of just—you can see as sad for his brother. Right. It appears that Jimmy and Rebecca always had sort of an easy affection uh, and easy relationship, and for him to pull her out, not to rattle Chuck, as Chuck said, but to, I think— appear to chuck to be jimmy's gambit i think that jimmy knew chuck would be thinking what's what's jimmy up to what's jimmy's plan right and so he sees rebecca come in and chuck suddenly can direct all of his almost relief and anger at the same time at this is what he's got planned this is what he's planning on doing to rattle me is to bring yeah. Rebecca and this isn't going to work. All right, Jimmy, nice try. You know, at that moment Chuck has now satisfied himself that he knows what Jimmy was going to try. But
1: you're right, you can you can put that right in the same box with um presenting the the phone that has no battery. It's like I'm going to do a couple of things that Chuck is going to think are uh on the edge of the law kind of tricks and he's going to hate that. And that's going to rattle him. You know, more than just seeing his ex-girlfriend, it's it's seeing these types of strategies <laughs> that that really rad, rattles Chuck, because it's like, you are playing around the edges of the law.
0: Right, this kind of chicanery.
1: This chicanery you know, shall not stand. It's
0: just, it's just what I expect from you. This is the rare episode title where it's instantly apparent why it applies to the show and the, the message of yeah. the show. Yeah, yeah. This was one that was very literal.
1: Oh, but this also answered the question of... What was gotten out of the address book on Mike's right. recon mission was uh, Rebecca's phone number.
0: So uh, I guess there's a couple, there's like maybe three little beats that need to be talked about before we just sort of wrap up with the hearing itself. One would be Jimmy going to see the veterinarian. What did you make of that scene and uh, how quickly did you figure out uh, what that was setting up?
1: Uh, I liked the scene. It was just nice to see him there and to hear the, the reference to our mutual friend and uh, and the way Jimmy put it, I'm looking for somebody with light fingers, but still, uh, you know, uh, left me wondering, what's he doing? I don't know what's going on or who he's going to get or how. Um, But uh, what was the end of that? What was the second? What was part two of that question?
0: How quickly did you figure out what that was presaging? Oh,
1: not until um, he ran into Huel on the stairs when, when Chuck got bumped. Then I said, oh, it's a reverse pickpocket. He's going to put something in Chuck's pocket. Uh, up until that moment, I had no idea what we were doing. And at that moment, I still I didn't even recognize Huell uh, with all his weight loss until until he said his name was Huell in the, in the court.
0: Yeah, I was going to bring that up um, when we got to it, but uh, uh, I guess we'll talk about it now. The It was a weird thing where you're like, I'm pretty sure that's Huell. I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to know who that is because it was kind of a hero shot. It was sort yeah. of a turnaround, see the face, right. and confirm that it's the guy that we know. I mean, it made sense. I, I sort of knew it was Huel also because in the earlier scene when he said, I need someone with a light touch or whatever. And the, then he said, Does he have to fit into tight spaces? And he said,
1: No. Well, right. You know it's going to be somebody fat, but I just didn't, didn't occur to me to think of Huel. But
0: also, we know that Huel was able to swap out the rice and cigarette when he like frisked Jesse on Breaking Bad. And I remember even viewers of the show making a joke about how Huel had, you know, a lighter touch than you would think or more more delicate fingers than you would think <laughs> for kind of a big Right, guy.
1: so they remembered that and they said, oh, he's got pickpocket powers and we'll introduce him through his pickpocket powers instead of through his his bodyguard powers.
0: That was an interesting character to bring back and the way he played into... The courtroom or the hearing room scene itself uh, I didn't fully expect that to happen I don't know what the I didn't know if reverse pickpocketing was something another unethical thing that Jimmy was doing that was going to reflect badly on him right but um, I did enjoy seeing the way that played out and I, I think it's funny and odd that the oh it's Huell moment was just robbed of of its full potency by going I'm pretty sure that's the same actor who played Huel. <laughs> right that looks like him
1: well he lost uh, Lavelle Crawford uh, lost 120 pounds and uh, so he's a different uh, shaped guy, but uh, you know, since this is a prequel, then they can just say, "Well, this is this is the this is a uh, uh, Huel before he got so big," uh, and we just have to hope, we just need to uh, hope for the actor's sake that he doesn't uh, take that on and and say, "Okay, I, for this part, I need to be uh, bulking back up for the role."
0: One other moment that Merritt's mentioning is the moment with Kim and her Mesa Verde clients. She's there with Kevin and Paige. Mm-hmm. And we see her tell them about the sort of conflict of interest or the possible snag that that might cause them to reconsider whether they want her to be their outside counsel. and And Kevin seems pretty unconcerned with how it might blow back on them through Kim because we've sort of known all along that Kevin didn't have a lot of Love for Chuck's basic demeanor. I've always felt like those two guys kind of clicked when Chuck was impressing him, but that outside of that, he thinks the guy is, you know, uh, puffed up and incompetent and all this stuff. And and those scenes have this weird friction to them because we know the truth. We know that Chuck actually is, is right yeah. To to want his reputation to be repaired. Yeah. But we also know that Kim is aware of Chuck and the same things that Kevin and Paige might not quite like about Chuck as just a guy uh, that kind of rub you the wrong way. Like, these are all things that feed into why, <laughs> like, both why what Jimmy did for Chuck is particularly bad for someone who has such a high opinion of himself, but also it's something that's going to feed into something people already sense about Chuck with his ego. Like, the more defiant he is that he can't be in the wrong, the more it feeds this impression that he's a guy who is a little too high on himself.
1: Right, but that was a good little... Uh cliffhanger there because Kim presented it with really no bias you know she could have said can you believe Chuck has done this crazy thing and he's got this bizarre theory about Jimmy transposing numbers in the photocopies but I don't know this guy's a nut you know she didn't say anything like that she just laid it out as facts and then there's a beat of pause you know where you're thinking oh, what in the world is Kevin gonna say and then he comes down on the side of well it Chuck is you know clearly a a crazy person so I'm not going to worry about it Uh, so uh, it was a a fun moment of drama
0: and it leaves us wondering if Kim if what she said to them quite passes the smell test when she said uh, trust me this doesn't involve Mesa Verde in any way shape or form yeah it could be that this comes back to bite her someday. Right. Uh, but if I feel like if they get over this hearing and Kim hasn't had any consequences, it almost becomes immaterial.
1: It seems like it, but you're right. You never can know what they're going to pull out of the drawer and what they're going to get into another time.
0: So the other beat that I think is worth mentioning before we talk about the hearing itself is a really revealing scene where we see Chuck— Practicing what he's going to say when Mm -hmm. he's testifying. Because we've seen him give the, and Michael McKean is great in those moments. And you and I have been taken in by him every time. (laughs) We've seen him say those, I love my brother. Yeah. He's got good in him. We've seen him do that. And we've seen him kind of get the wet eyes. This time we saw him finding the words. Yeah. And we see him land on the one that is the most like what we've heard him say before this kind of thing that makes it sound like he's being so fair but it's got to be tough love now you know yeah and then so later when we see him be asked the question that i think was staged so that he could have this answer one more question mr miguel his lawyer says to him Mm -hmm. do you hate your brother you know throws it out there and then chuck has a chance to look around and again eyes get moist and say no i love my brother you know and then he says the thing that sounds like an indictment but also very fair and and even within that, he can't help but pontificate too much. He says this really pompous thing. He says that—I uh, um, have it written down here. Uh, he says, the way my brother treats the law breaks my heart. Yeah, you know? right, right. Uh, and yeah, he's laying it on a bit thick, but you see that he—this is—we uh, know now what a performance this is.
1: Right, and he's saying the law, as though it's so sacred, which it is to him, but he knows all, that it also would be to— the kinds of people who are going to be on this panel to to say, you know, he's he's abusing the law.
0: Mankind's greatest achievement, he says. <laughs> right, but it also is something that just tells us, oh yeah, we have been watching this sort of master thespian yeah. this whole season with him.
1: And we have another moment before the trial gets started, just briefly, where uh, Howard uh, tries to you know talk Chuck out of taking a stand. Tries to talk him out of that by saying. You know, we can we can do this without that, and uh, you're just gonna complicate it. And uh, uh, but that's when we see his hubris. You know, I think that's that was that was there to underline Chuck's hubris of, of like, oh, I've got to do this, and uh, you know, he believes in himself uh, too much, right there, and that's what gets him in trouble
0: in that scene after Howard has advised him that he doesn't have to take the stand, that they have a good case. Mm -hmm. And as Chuck is leaving that scene, as he's walking away from Howard, having refused to take his advice uh, about, you know, just not testifying, he says, um, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Mm -hmm. Another thing he says later to Rebecca, when she's saying that she is uh, leaving, that she can tell she's not making him happy and she doesn't want to upset him. And she's going to be in town for a few days, you know, call me. And he says, no, I want you to stick around. He says, you've been sold a bill of goods, Rebecca. I want you to know what's what. Right. So, again, those are all things that are very much what Chuck, like you said, he's, his pomposity is the thing that sets him up for this fall. Yeah. He has so many chances. He didn't have to push this so hard against Jimmy. Yeah. I mean, don't you think Chuck really just wanted everyone to stand up and say, you're right, Chuck. You're right about everything.
1: Right. And also, oh, Chuck, that was actually uh, very clever and smart how you uh, got it over on Jimmy that time. You, you really uh, uh, pulled a cool trick. I guess that's what it comes down to.
0: That's kind of sad. Did you feel bad for Chuck at the end?
1: Uh, well, yes, but more it, the the pall that is over me through the whole situation of 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 these brothers throughout the whole series is just feeling bad for the two of them, bad for the situation, you know, uh that they that they both ended up in. It's kind of like this this uh guy who came into the store where they worked as kids and uh and told Jimmy, uh, "You can either be a wolf or a sheep." Uh, that guy uh, victimized both uh, Jimmy and Chuck throughout their lives, and set them on a, on a path of uh, of of just having this this mess with each other throughout throughout their career.
0: Yeah, I saw somewhere where Vince Gilligan said in an interview that. There are times when he works on the show where he is thinking, it's really a shame these two brothers can't work it out. That, like, why does it have to be so tragic? Right. You know, as they break the story, they like for things to be realistic and they keep getting into these waters that are so just murky and sad and that he has wondered why it has to be that way. And like, so as he said, as a person, he has sometimes felt like, why can't these two brothers just work it out? So it is a two way street. But I think the thing that I, 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 I played the situation back in my head and I kind of was like, well, who, who was, you know, the tit for tat between the brothers, like who, who was doing this and who was doing that and how far back does it go? And clearly it does go as far back as that as childhood. But it's important to remember that the way that Chuck snaked Mesa Verde away from Kim in the first place was pretty shitty. And pretty vindictive. Basically, he was punishing Kim for being associated with Jimmy. It's important to remember how shitty that was. And that if he hadn't done that, that's one more if Chuck had just left this uh, this alone or this alone or this alone, then he wouldn't be in the situation he's in. Where he's essentially, I mean, I don't know that he's rendered himself completely invalid to people, but I think that at that moment, whatever authority his his mind had, that he was really leaning on how perfectly functional his mind is. I think he sort of he sort of eroded people's faith in that
1: in his final meltdown. Yeah, yeah, which was fantastic. I loved how well done that was and just the slow truck in on his face as he gets it. and this is what 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 would happen to anybody who has a series of things to complain about and you get flustered. And then you bring up a fragment about one and a fragment about another and a fragment about another. And they begin to sound uh, disjointed and crazy, you know, because now it just sounds like you're not talking sense. You're just like you like you don't have a, a train of thought and you're all over the place and you start to really sound like a crazy person. And they had the camera just slowly coming in and in and in until it was, you know, just really uncomfortably tight on him. And then he looks over, and the whole panel is looking at him, and he realizes that he just lost it.
0: And that if you're Chuck McGill, and you lose it, then you've lost it.
1: Yeah, right, because your whole thing, I mean, the the trial has been turned into something about uh, your character and whether you're a crazy person. And so now they're watching to see if you're a crazy person, and then you just started acting like a crazy person.
0: But he forced the issue by sitting up there, you know? Right, so now though he's been stripped of all that and I guess my point is is he a compelling figure of pathos now or is he just sort of a wretched figure?
1: I think I think you can be both. He's he's all that. He's just Chuck. It's yeah. just a me- he's he's just a mess. I mean he he can forever vacillate uh as we've seen them do it this long. You could you could do it forever of uh you know between being uh somebody who who seems like uh, they hoist themselves on their own petard. They're sort of a villain, but also we can sort of see why, and we can sort of sympathize with how he got into it. He's just a real person.
0: Well, I expect the next phase to be very focused on the sort of guilt and fallout for Jimmy of doing that to Chuck, because this is, I mean, a very crummy thing that he did to Chuck, but he, he, he did... He did allow Chuck to sort of do it to himself, but that does not mean he didn't set Chuck up. Yeah. And I don't know, the way that episode ended, if Chuck does spiral, I think it will be more upsetting to watch than it would have been before this moment.
1: Well, they ended on ultimately on the exit sign, and that was so foreboding and big and hanging over him and buzzing. Uh, and, I mean, yes, that could just mean, ooh, game over, the trial, you just you just ruined this this trial here, but... Yeah, taken more broadly, it could mean, oh, you're you're out of the game. You're not even gonna be a lawyer anymore if they if they do end up with him getting disbarred. But I would think realistically, maybe that would have to be a whole nother hearing and stuff. They wouldn't just go, Oh, we saw you act like a crazy person, so you're you're out, you know. Um but still I like the exit sign hanging over things. But we don't know for sure if the if the trial is over. We could start the next episode, you know, with Jimmy and Kim Having sandwiches and saying, well, that trial three days ago was uh, quite a thing. And now that it's over, I'm moving on, you know, or or we could start with uh, and one minute later and then spend another half hour, half hour of of some kind of twists and turns and surprises.
0: What we saw was something that poked holes in Chuck's case. It didn't exactly exonerate Jimmy of any of the things he's actually confessed to. And and in the letter, you know, as far as the breaking and entering, that all happened, whether Chuck's. mentally ill or physically ill you know right
1: but, so they can definitely come down and, and say Jimmy you're disbarred if they feel like it.
0: but we know that if he's disbarred then that kind of shoots the show in the foot so I think the suspension that Chuck was talking about in the beginning of the episode he said maybe a year maybe two that's what'll happen if, if I don't take this extra step of playing the tape and making sure they understand mm-hmm. did you have any other thoughts about chicanery
1: I think we touched on everything that I wanted to touch on
0: I actually have two things. One is just a quick little note about the character of the, the chairman of the, the hearing committee. I the, He had a couple line readings that I guess you can't avoid, but they were a little bit where I felt the most like I was watching a legal show of ever having watched this show. Otherwise, I think the way they filmed the, the hearing room and the way they just the way that unfolded on film, the way they almost treated it like a a play. You're in one room, you mm-hmm. know having this go on. I think they handled it really beautifully and filmically and in the in keeping with the style of the show. But when you have a guy behind a big desk say, um, you can proceed, but watch yourself. Yeah. It's very hard not to feel like, uh-oh, has is this show, is, could this show become a cheesy courtroom drama? I don't think it would ever happen. But I think that might be why they stay away from scenes like that is because there's only so much you can do that isn't cliche in that well, setting.
1: but they actually pointed up, you know, he wants me to crack like on a cheesy... Perry Mason episode, however he put it, and then that's exactly what happened.
0: Well, okay, here's, here's, here's my actual final thought. Um, this is episode five of season three, which means if this is a five-season show, which I did read that one reference to a five-season plan, and I remember hearing uh, Peter Gould and, and Vince Gilligan sort of suppose they pictured it going on about as long as Breaking Bad, which was a five-season show, then we are now at the halfway point of Better Call Saul.
1: Right, center.
0: That's it. We just celebrated the halfway point. Yep. And, well, just to counter that five-year plan business, I do want to throw this at you as well, that an interview that appeared on Den of Geek on April 25th of this year, Mm -hmm. Vince Gilligan was asked about how far into the show that he feels that they are and how many episodes they feel that they're doing. And he says that he doesn't want to give an exact episode count because they themselves don't know if they know exactly how many episodes they've got left. And he said that was because... This show has always seemed like it has this finite ending point, which is that when you catch up to the story we know from Breaking Bad, that it's over. Mm-hmm. That that's what this show is designed to do, you know. Right. But he said now they've nurtured this this flash forward that he says now seems to them like a wide open possibility. And he says he sees the scope of that story to be wider than the Better Call Saul story so far or Breaking Bad. Aha. huh so anyway, I thought that that was interesting, and also made me think. Oh God, does that mean if this show is great and stays great, that they'll do six or seven seasons? Because that means we're locked in, Chris. What the hell are we doing here?
1: They should. Uh, <laughs> well, I like to think we can we can jump ship anytime, but we're enjoying it so far, so I don't mind. But I think if if he thinks it's that rich, then what he's really thinking, and what I think they should be thinking, is they should keep to the five year plan. And bring Saul up to the point where Breaking Bad is going to begin soon, uh, and then their third show, their 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 you know their third uh, Gilligan's Albuquerque show, uh, would start up with Gene reclaiming his life and or doing whatever he's going to do to get into a new world of. Uh, Crime and law or whatever he's going to get into, and that introduces us to a new set of characters in a new place. You know, maybe maybe that's the whole world in—where uh, is he? Omaha. Omaha. Maybe, you know, maybe that's that's the beginning of, of the uh, Omaha series.
0: We've hoped for maybe just an episode set in Gene's world, but if they actually do a season set in that world, that would be the only way that I would really want to see Jesse— would be in in a future storyline. I don't really want to see Aaron Paul try to act like himself seven years ago, you know, or eight years ago or 10 years ago or however long it would have to be at this point. But I would like to maybe see if there is some interaction between Saul and Jesse in the future, what that would mean. So who Gene is and what that story could be and the fact that they think that the scope of it could be really that big just makes me think, oh, surely now they've got the, the list of ideas that we often talk about that they're like, well, maybe we'll get to this. So...
1: Right, maybe they'll do five five seasons of Saul plus one season of Gene.
0: I'd be fine with that. But in any case, you know what that was? That was a hot talk. You got it, hot talk. <laughs>